for free. They get your Tuesday night party on with two for one well drink special drinks. Alticast or Sun Call Me Tim or whatever happens on a Tuesday at noon. I'm your host, Pam Benjamin. I will be joined or not joined by LaToya, the Sheriff of Truth, when now she has a new last name. Fuck. I swear it's I'm just ruining everything today. Well, thanks for listening to mutinyradio.fm and .sf. She might or might not be here with uh, Kyla, and that's, that's cool. We're, we're just ch- playing it by ear. I'm here anyways working on details for the upcoming Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival in October. Oh, my God. Like, why am I? Because August is almost over, you guys. And October is right around the corner. It's literally like two months away, the, the festival, which is wild. <laughs> ah! So working hard every day, getting all the pieces in place and we're listening to The History of God by Care with Karen Armstrong, and we're on disc three, if you've been following along when I've been playing it or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. Thanks for listening to Mutiny Radio if you do. I don't know who we are, but you can always donate at Mutiny Radio on our Venmo. Things might be changing. We'll see. I mean, we might be, be moving completely away from radio, but I'm keeping the name Mutiny Radio no matter what, even when we're just producing the movies. <laughs> Uh, but we'll we'll see what happens. I don't know. The future is now. No, I don't know what's happening. But life is good, right? I mean, I get to be creative in a space. And, and uh, this year's festival, we're, I'm really hoping for the best. I mean, it'll be great. Like, the shows will be great and everything will be great. Everyone will be very funny. But, you know, audience is always the thing. So please come out and support live stand-up comedy. <laughs> please. I hate begging, but it's just part and parcel to the whole thing. At weird words, saying words, Dead. let's listen to Karen Armstrong. I'll be back at 1 or one fifteen. It might be a phone call. It might be in person. I don't know. Hopefully we can talk about catcalling because that's what happened on my way here. And usually in the Tenderloin, I like it when people say nice things. Like one guy jumped on the bus and he said, hey, everybody, just want to say positive vibes, good Positivity for today. Everyone have an awesome day. And then jumped off the bus. And I was like, what? Very cool. Very nice. Um, that was cool. One time, a gentleman, well, you know, and I always know when I have a cute outfit on because people will say, look, give me, like, actual compliments. But I was waiting for the 27 bus. I took a hit off my vape pen, my dad pen, and I was kind of, like, trying to cough discreetly. <laughs> and I was in the sun, and a guy above me said, oh, two minutes to the bus. And I was like, great. I took my jacket off, and these guys rolled up in a car, and they were at a red light, and they start going, hey, hey. And I'm, like, not going to acknowledge that because it's, A, not my name. B, they don't know me, and I don't know what they're going to say. And so I'm just not making eye contact. I'm, you know, being myself, like, looking off into the distance, uh, and I'm just ignoring them. And they kept doing it. Hey, hey. And it's, like, what am I going to say? What am I going to look? You're, I don't want your attention. Especially the way they ask for it. it. That isn't the way I want. I mean, like, I don't know. A compliment is one thing. 
and hey is another like what are you gonna get my number you saw me on the street fuck you like gross and sometimes I feel like people want to give me compliments because they know I'm old you can tell by my hair because you can't sell hair dye to people with self-esteem but they can tell and so they think they're like it's all exciting like this old lady really needs a compliment and I'm gonna tell her something it's fine like I get it you don't have to say anything you know I don't know what happens if I start wearing makeup it's too hot to wear makeup I'm going Hey, I'm going to play Karen Armstrong. I'm sorry. You guys are being therapy for me right now. Uh, and it's okay. I do. Th- but there is a difference between catcalling and cat complimenting. And meow. I'll take the compliment. But don't yell hey at me on the street. I give compliments to people all the time who look awesome. Like, I see people and they look awesome. And I'm like, oh, my God. Your shoes are everything. Because their shoes are everything. Or they have an outfit that they clearly, like, put together in like a super cute way and it's like oh my god I love that and I'm not you know that's like I'm acknowledging the effort of what they fashion wise came up with you know and that's not cat calling it's complimenting if I was like your fucking ass is hot like ugh, ugh, didn't want it like mm. anyways Karen Armstrong history of God volume three I'm learning too cool Falsifer had been inspired by the encounter with Greek science and metaphysics, but was not slavishly dependent upon Hellenism. In their Middle Eastern colonies, the Greeks had tended to follow a standard curriculum in their education, and this had led to a degree of unity and coherence. Coherence. However, the Phalasops did not observe this curriculum, but read the texts as they became available in Arabic. This inevitably opened up new perspectives. Besides their own distinctively Islamic and Arab insights, their thinking was also affected by Persian, Indian, and Gnostic influence. Thus, Yaqub ibn Ishaq al-Kindi, who died in about 870, was the first Muslim to apply the rational method to the Quran. He disagreed with Aristotle on several major issues. He could see philosophy only as the handmaid of revelation. Most later philosophers would not share this perspective. Al-Kindi was also anxious to seek out truth in other religious traditions, however. Truth was one, and it was the task of the philosophers to search for it in whatever cultural or linguistic garments it had assumed. Here, Al-Kindi was in line with the Quran, but he went further since he also turned to the Greek philosophers. He used Aristotle's arguments for the existence of a prime mover. In a rational world, he argued, everything had a cause. There must, therefore, be an unmoved mover to start the ball rolling, as it were. This first principle was being itself, unchangeable, perfect, and indestructible. But Al-Kindi departed from Aristotle by adhering to the Quranic doctrine of creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Action can be defined as the bringing of something out of nothing. This, Al-Kindi maintained, was God's prerogative. Falsifer came to reject creation ex nihilo, so Al-Kindi cannot really be described as a true philosoph. But he was a pioneer in the Islamic attempt to harmonize religious truth with systematic metaphysics. His successors were more radical. 
Thus, Abu Bakr Muhammad ibn Zakaria Arazi, who died in about 930, has been described as the greatest nonconformist in Muslim history. He saw the creation as the work of a demiurge, a subordinate deity. Matter could not have proceeded from a holy spiritual god. He also rejected the Aristotelian solution of a prime mover, as well as the Quranic doctrines of revelation and prophecy. Only reason and philosophy could save us. Most philosophes did not take their rationalism to such an extreme. One of the reasons that falsifer remained a minority sect in Islam was its elitism. It necessarily only appealed to those with a certain IQ, and was thus against the egalitarian spirit that was beginning to characterize Muslim society. The Turkish philosopher Abu Nasser al-Farabi, who died in 980, dealt with the problem of the uneducated masses. He can be regarded as the founder of authentic falsafa and showed the attractive universality of this Muslim ideal. In The Republic, Plato had argued that a good society must be led by a philosopher who ruled according to natural principles, which he was able to put across to the ordinary people. Al-Farabi maintained that the Prophet Muhammad had been exactly the kind of ruler that Plato had envisaged. Al-Farabi saw revelation as a wholly natural process. The god of the Greek philosophers, who was remote from human concerns, could not possibly talk to human beings and interfere in mundane events, as the traditional doctrine of revelation implied. Al-Farabi did not believe that God had suddenly decided to create the world. That would have involved the eternal and static God in unseemly change. Like the Greeks, Al-Farabi saw the chain of being proceeding eternally from the One in ten successive emanations, which he referred to as intellects. Al-Farabi's doctrine of emanation became generally accepted by the philosophes. Mystics also found the notion of emanation more sympathetic than the doctrine of the creation ex nihilo, as we shall see. Muslim Sufis and Jewish Kabbalists often found that the insights of the philosophes were an inspiration to their more imaginative mode of religion. This was particularly evident in the Shia, the party of Ali. Although they remained a minority form of Islam, the 10th century is known as the Shi'i century, since Shi'is managed to establish themselves in leading political posts throughout the empire. Shi'is revered the direct descendants of Ali, whom they regarded as the true leaders or imams of the Muslim Ummah. The veneration of the imams was no mere political enthusiasm, however. Shi'is had come to believe that their imams embodied God's presence on earth in some mysterious way. They had evolved an esoteric piety of their own, which depended upon a symbolic reading of the Quran. It was held by them that Muhammad had imparted a secret knowledge to his cousin and son-in-law, Ali ibn Abi Talib, and that this had been passed down the line of designated imams who were his direct descendants. Shi'is saw their imams as temples or treasuries of the divine, brimful of that enlightening divine knowledge. The Ismailis, a Shi'i sect, feared that the philosophes were concentrating too much on the external and rationalistic elements of religion, 
and were neglecting its spiritual kernel. But they had also developed their own philosophy and science, which were regarded as spiritual disciplines to enable them to perceive the inner meaning of the Qur'an. Contemplating the abstractions of science and mathematics purified their minds of sensual imagery and freed them from the limitations of their workaday consciousness. Instead of using science to gain an accurate and literal understanding of external reality, as we do, the Ismailis used it to develop their imaginations. They turned to the old Zoroastrian myths of Iran, fused them with some Neoplatonic ideas, and evolved a new perception of salvation history. It will be recalled that in more traditional societies, people believed that their experience here below repeated events that had taken place in the celestial world. The same was true of more abstract spiritual realities. Every prayer or virtuous deed that we perform here and now was duplicated in the celestial world, which gave it eternal significance. These heavenly archetypes were felt to be true in the same way as the events and forms that inhabit our imagination often seem more real and significant to us than our mundane existence. It can be seen as an attempt to explain our conviction that our lives have meaning and importance. In the 10th century, the Ismailis revived this ancient mythology, which had been abandoned by Persian Muslims when they converted to Islam, but which was still part of their cultural inheritance, and they fused it imaginatively with the Platonic doctrine of emanation. Al-Farabi had envisaged ten emanations between God and the material world. Now the Ismailis made the Prophet and the Imams the souls of this celestial scheme. This image of the apotheosized Imams reflected the Ismaili interpretation of the true meaning of Shi'i history. This had not just been a succession of external mundane events, many of them tragic. The lives of these illustrious Imams here on earth had corresponded to events in the archetypal order. The Ismaili Batinis, who sought the hidden or Batin dimension of religion, used symbolism which they felt revealed a deeper reality than could be perceived by the senses or expressed in rational concepts. Accordingly, they developed a method of reading the Quran which they called Tawil, literally carrying back. They felt that this method would carry them back to the original archetypal Quran. It was a discipline that enabled Muslims to understand God as he deserved to be understood. Abu Yaqub al-Sijistani, a leading Ismaili thinker who died in 971, explained. Muslims often spoke about God anthropomorphically, making him a larger-than-life man, while others, like the Phalasups, reduced God to a concept. Instead, al-Sijistani advocated the use of the double negative. We should begin by talking about God in negatives, saying, for example, that he was non-being rather than being, not ignorant rather than wise, and so forth. But we should immediately negate that rather lifeless and abstract negation, saying that God is not not ignorant, or that he is not nothing in the way that we normally use the word. By a repeated use of this linguistic discipline, the Batini 
would become aware of the inadequacy of language when it tried to convey the mystery of God. Ismaili writers frequently spoke of their batin in terms of illumination and transformation. Tawil was not designed to provide information about God, but to create a sense of wonder that enlightened the batini at a level deeper than the rational. Nor was it escapism. The Ismailis were political activists. Indeed, Jafar ibn Sadiq, the sixth imam, had defined faith as action. Like the Prophet and the Imams, the believer had to make his vision of God effective in the mundane world. These ideals were also shared by the Ikhwan al-Safa, the Brethren of Purity, an esoteric society that arose in Basra during the Shi'i century. The Brethren were probably an offshoot of Ismailism. Like the Ismailis, they dedicated themselves to the pursuit of science, as well as to political action. Like the Ismailis, the brethren were searching for the batin, the hidden meaning of life. Their epistles, which became an encyclopedia of the philosophical sciences, were extremely popular and spread as far west as Spain. Again, the brethren combined science and mysticism. Mathematics was seen as a prelude to philosophy and psychology. A deep understanding of the self became the kingpin of Islamic mysticism. The Sufis, the Sunni mystics with whom the Ismailis felt great affinity, had an axiom, he who knows himself knows his Lord. This was quoted in the first epistle of the brethren. As they contemplated the numbers that they allotted to the soul, they were led back to the primal one, the principle of the human self in the heart of the psyche. The brethren were also very close to the Fela Sufs. Like the Muslim rationalists, they emphasized the unity of truth, which must be sought everywhere. Falsafa reached its apogee in the work of Abu Ali ibn Sina, who died in 1037 and who was known in the West as Avicenna. Ibn Sina believed that if Falsafa was to live up to its claims of presenting a complete picture of reality, it must make more sense of the religious belief of ordinary people, which was a major fact of political, social and personal life. Instead of seeing revealed religion as an inferior version of Falsafa, Ibn Sina held that a prophet like Muhammad was superior to any philosopher because he enjoyed a direct and intuitive knowledge of God. This did not mean, however, that the intellect could make no sense of God. Ibn Sina worked out a rational demonstration of the existence of God based on Aristotle's proofs, which became standard among later medieval philosophers in both Judaism and Islam. Ibn Sina didn't develop his proofs to convince himself of the existence of God. Neither he nor the Sufs had the slightest doubt that God existed. They never doubted that unaided human reason could arrive at a knowledge of the existence of a supreme being. Ibn Sina saw it as a religious duty for those who had the intellectual ability to discover God for themselves in this way to do so, because reason could refine the conception of God and free it of superstition and anthropomorphism. Ibn Sina and his successors, therefore, were not developing these proofs to argue with atheists, since in the ninth century there were no atheists in our sense of the word. 
They wanted to use reason to discover as much as they could about the nature of God. Ibn Sina's proof begins with a consideration of the way our minds work. Wherever we look in the world, we see composite beings that consist of a number of different elements. When we try to understand something, we analyse it, breaking it up into its component parts. The simple elements seem primary to us, and the composite beings that they form seem secondary. We are continually looking for simplicity, therefore, for beings that are irreducibly themselves. It was an axiom of falsifer that reality forms a logically coherent whole. That meant that our endless quest for simplicity must reflect things on a larger scale. Like all Platonists, Ibn Sina felt that the multiplicity we see all around us must be dependent upon a primal unity. The philosophers and the Quran were in agreement that God was simplicity itself. He was one. It follows, therefore, that he cannot be analysed. Because this being is absolutely simple, it has no cause, no qualities, no temporal dimension, and there is absolutely nothing that we can say about it. God cannot be the object of discursive thought, because our brains cannot deal with him in the way that they deal with everything else. Because God is essentially unique, he cannot be compared to any of the things that exist in the normal, contingent sense. Consequently, when we talk about God, it's better to use negatives to distinguish him absolutely from everything else that we talk about. But since God is the source of all things, we can postulate certain things about him. Because we know that goodness exists, God must be essential or necessary goodness. Because we know that life, power and knowledge exist, God must be alive, powerful and intelligent in the most essential and complete manner. Yet Ibn Sina was not content with this abstract account of God's nature. He wanted to relate it to the religious experience of believers, Sufis and Batinis. Interested in religious philosophy, he used Al-Farabi's scheme of emanation to explain the experience of prophecy. The last, the intelligences or emanations in our own sphere, own sphere, the tenth, is the Holy Spirit of Revelation, known as Gabriel, the source of light and knowledge. By receiving the Qur'an from Gabriel, the Prophet Muhammad had perfected this direct union with the divine world. This psychological interpretation of vision and revelation would enable the more philosophically inclined Sufis to discuss their own religious experience. Indeed, at the end of his life, Ibn Sina seems to have become a mystic himself. The disciplines of Kalam and Falsafa had inspired a similar intellectual movement among the Jews of the Islamic Empire. They began to write their own philosophy in Arabic, introducing a metaphysical and speculative element into Judaism for the first time. Unlike the Muslim philosophers, the Jewish philosophers concentrated almost entirely on religious matters. They felt that they had to answer the challenge of Islam on its own terms, and that involved squaring the personalistic God of the Bible with the god of the philosophers. Like the Muslims, they worried about the anthropomorphic portrait of God in the scriptures and the Talmud, and asked themselves 
how he could be the same as the god of the philosophers. They worried about the problem of the creation of the world and about the relation between revelation and reason. They naturally came to different conclusions, but they were deeply dependent upon the Muslim thinkers. Thus, Sadia ibn Joseph, who died in 942, was the first to undertake a philosophical interpretation of Judaism. He was a Talmudist, but he also believed that reason could attain a knowledge of God by means of its own powers. Like a philosopher, he saw the attainment of a rational conception of God as a mitzvah, a religious duty. Yet Sadia had no doubts whatever about the existence of God. A Jew was not required to strain his reason to accept the truths of revelation without proof, Sadia argued. But that did not mean that God was entirely accessible to human reason. Sadia acknowledged that the idea of the creation ex nihilo was fraught with philosophical difficulties and impossible to explain in rational terms because the god of falsifer is not capable of initiating change. How could a material world have its origin in a holy spiritual god? Here we had reached the limits of reason and must simply accept that the world was not eternal, as Platonists believed, but had a beginning in time. This was the only possible explanation that agreed with scripture and common sense. Once we've accepted this, Sadia said, we can deduce other facts about God. The created order is intelligently planned. It has life and energy. Therefore God, who created it, must also have wisdom, life and power. These attributes are mere aspects of God. It is only because our human language cannot adequately express the reality of God that we have to analyse him in this way. If we want to be as exact about God as possible, we can only properly say that he exists. Sadia does not forbid all positive description of God, however, nor does he put the remote and impersonal God of the philosophers above the personal, anthropomorphic God of the Bible. When, for example, he tries to explain the suffering that we see in the world, Sadia resorts to the solutions of the wisdom writers and the Talmud. Suffering, he says, is a punishment for sin. It purifies and disciplines us in order to make us humble. This would not have satisfied a true philosopher because it makes God far too human. But Sadia does not see the revealed God of Scripture as inferior to the God of Falsifer. The prophets were superior to any philosopher. Ultimately, reason could only attempt to demonstrate systematically what the Bible had taught. Other Jews went further. In his Fountain of Life, the 11th century Neoplatonist Solomon ibn Gabirol could not accept the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, but tried to adapt the theory of emanation to allow God some degree of spontaneity and free will. He claimed that God had willed or desired the process of emanation, thereby attempting to make it less mechanical and to indicate that God was in control of the laws of existence. Others were less innovative. Bahia ibn Pakuda, who died in 1080, was not a strict Platonist, but retreated to the methods of Kalam whenever it suited him. Thus, like Sadia, he argued that God had created the world at a particular moment. The world had certainly not come into being by accident.
The order and purposiveness of the world shows that there must be a creator, as scripture had revealed. Having thus put forward this highly unphilosophical doctrine, Bayer then switched from Kalam to Falsifer, listing Ibn Sina's proof that a necessary, simple being had to exist. Bayer believed that the only people who worshipped God properly were prophets and philosophers. The prophet had a direct, intuitive knowledge of God, the philosopher a rational knowledge of him. Everybody else was simply worshipping a projection of himself, a god made in his own image. Bayer was as elitist as any philosoph, but he also had strong Sufi leanings. Reason could tell us that God existed, but could not tell us anything about him. But if reason could not tell us anything about God, what was the point of rational discussion of theological matters? This question agonized the Muslim thinker Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, a crucial and emblematic figure in the history of religious philosophy. Writing in the late 11th century, in his treatise The Incoherence of the Philosophers, al-Ghazali argued that the philosophers were begging the question. If falsifer confined itself to mundane, observable phenomena, it could tell us nothing about God. How could anybody prove the doctrine of emanation one way or the other? By what authority did the philosophers assert that God knew only general, universal things rather than particulars? Could they prove this? Their argument that God was too exalted to know what happened on earth was inadequate, since when was ignorance about anything excellent? There was no way any of these propositions could be satisfactorily verified, so the philosophers had been irrational and unphilosophical by seeking knowledge that lay beyond the capacity of the mind. But where did that leave the honest seeker after truth? Was a sound, unshakable faith in God impossible? The strain of his quest caused al-Ghazali such personal distress that he had a breakdown. Fearing that he was in danger of hellfire, al-Ghazali resigned his prestigious academic post in Baghdad and went off to join the Sufis. There he found what he was looking for. Without abandoning his reason, al-Ghazali discovered that the mystical disciplines yielded a direct but intuitive sense of God. Since wujud, the Arabic word for existence, literally means that which is findable, an Arabic-speaking philosopher who attempted to prove that God existed did not have to produce God as another object or reality. He simply had to prove that God could be found. After living for ten years as a Sufi, al-Ghazali found that the religious experience was the only way of verifying a reality that lay beyond the reach of the human intellect. The Sufi's knowledge of God was not rational or metaphysical knowledge, but it was clearly akin to the intuitive experience of the prophets of old. Sufis thus found the essential truths of Islam for themselves by reliving its central experience. Al-Ghazali, therefore, formulated a mystical creed that would be acceptable to the Muslim establishment. Like Ibn Sina, he looked back to the ancient belief in an archetypal realm beyond this mundane world of sensory experience. The Quran and the Bible had both spoken of this spiritual world. 
man straddled both realms of reality. He belonged to the physical as well as to the higher world of the spirit because God had inscribed the divine image within him. Our reason is also enlightening. Like God himself, it can transcend time and space. It partakes of the same reality as the spiritual world, therefore. But in order to make it clear that by reason he did not merely refer to our cerebral, analytic powers, Al-Ghazali reminds his readers that his explanation cannot be understood in a literal sense. We can only discuss these matters in the figurative language that is the preserve of the creative imagination. Some people possess a power that is higher than reason, however, which Al-Ghazali calls the prophetic spirit. People who lack this faculty shouldn't deny that it exists simply because they have no experience of it. That would be as absurd as if somebody who was tone-deaf claimed that music was an illusion. We can learn something about God by means of our reasoning and imaginative powers, but the highest type of knowledge can be attained only by people like the prophets or the mystics who have this special God-enabling faculty. Instead of being an external, objectified being whose existence can be proved rationally, God is an all-enveloping reality and the ultimate existence, which cannot be perceived as we perceive the beings that depend upon it. We have to cultivate a special mode of seeing. Al-Ghazali eventually returned to his teaching duties in Baghdad, but he never lost his conviction that it was impossible to demonstrate the existence of God by logic and rational proof. For those who were not blessed with the special mystical or prophetic talent, Al-Ghazali devised a discipline to enable Muslims to cultivate a consciousness of God's reality. He made an indelible impression on Islam. Never again would Muslims make the facile assumption that God was a being like any other, whose existence could be demonstrated scientifically or philosophically. Henceforth, Muslim philosophy would become inseparable from spirituality and a more mystical discussion of God. Al-Ghazali also had an effect on Judaism. The Spanish philosopher Joseph ibn Sadiq, who died in 1143, used Ibn Sina's proof of the existence of God, but was careful to make the point that God was not simply another being, one of the things that exist in our usual sense of the word. The Toledan physician, Judah Halevi, who died in 1141, followed al-Ghazali closely. God could not be proved rationally, but that did not mean that faith in God was irrational, but simply that a logical demonstration of his existence had no religious value. Falsifer was not entirely dead as a result of al-Ghazali's polemic, however. In Cordova, in Spain, a distinguished Muslim philosopher attempted to revive it and to argue that it was the highest form of religion. Abu al-Walid ibn Ahmad ibn Rushd, who taught and wrote in the 12th century and was known in Europe as Averroes, became an authority in the West among both Jews and Christians. In the Islamic world, however, Ibn Rushd was a more marginal figure. In his career and his posthumous effect, we can see a parting of the ways between East and West in their approach to and conception of God. Ibn Rushd passionately disapproved of Al-Ghazali's condemnation of falsifer. 
he was convinced that there was no contradiction whatsoever between religion and rationalism. Both expressed the same truth in different ways. Both looked toward the same God. Not everybody was capable of philosophical thought, however, so falsifer was only for an intellectual elite. Ibn Rushd believed that the acceptance of certain truths was essential to salvation, a novel view in the Islamic world. Even the philosophs had to subscribe to the creed of obligatory doctrines, which Ibn Rushd listed as follows. 1. The existence of God as creator and sustainer of the world. 2. The unity of God. 3. The attributes of knowledge, power, will, hearing, seeing and speech which are given to God throughout the Quran. 4th, the uniqueness and incomparability of God. 5th, the creation of the world by God. 6th, the validity of prophecy. 7th, the justice of God. And 8th, the resurrection of the body on the last day. These doctrines about God must be accepted in toto, as the Quran is quite unambiguous about them. Ibn Rushd's great disciple in the Jewish world was the great Talmudist and philosopher Rabbi Moses Ibn Maimon, who died in 1204 and who is usually known as Maimonides. Like Ibn Rushd, Maimonides was a native of Cordova, the capital of Muslim Spain, where there was a growing consensus that some kind of philosophy was essential for a deeper understanding of God. Unlike Ibn Rushd, however, he did believe that the ordinary people could be taught to interpret the scriptures symbolically. He also believed that certain doctrines were necessary for salvation, and published a creed of 13 articles that was remarkably similar to Ibn Rushd's. Thus we have the existence of God, the unity of God, the incorporeality of God, the eternity of God, the prohibition of idolatry, and the validity of prophecy. Moses was the greatest of the prophets, the divine origin of truth, the eternal validity of the Torah. God knows the deeds of men. He judges them accordingly. He will send a Messiah and, finally, the resurrection of the dead. This was an innovation in Judaism and never became entirely accepted. As in Islam, the notion of orthodoxy or obligatory beliefs was alien to the Jewish religious experience. The creeds of Ibn Rushd and Maimonides suggest that a rationalistic and intellectualist approach to religion leads to dogmatism and to an identification of faith with correct belief. Yet Maimonides was careful to maintain that God was essentially inaccessible to human reason. He proved God's existence by means of the arguments of Aristotle and Ibn Sina, but insisted that God remains ineffable and indescribable because of his absolute simplicity. We cannot even say that God is good because he is far more than anything that we can mean by goodness. This is a way of preventing us from projecting our hopes and desires onto him. That would create a God in our own image and likeness. When it came to a choice between the God of the Bible and the God of the philosophers, Maimonides always chose the God of the Bible. Even though the doctrine of the creation ex nihilo was unorthodox philosophically, 
Maimonides adhered to the traditional biblical doctrine and jettisoned the philosophic idea of emanation. As he pointed out, neither could be proven definitively by reason alone. Despite Maimonides' emphasis on rationality, he maintained that the highest knowledge of God derived more from the imagination than from the intellect alone. His ideas spread among the Jews of southern France and Spain, so that by the beginning of the 14th century, there was what amounted to a Jewish philosophical enlightenment in the area. Some of these Jewish philosophes were more vigorously rationalistic than Maimonides himself. Thus, Levi ben Gershom, who died in 1344 of Bagnol in southern France, denied that God had knowledge of mundane affairs. His was the God of the philosophers, not the God of the Bible. Inevitably, a reaction set in. Some Jews turned to mysticism and developed the esoteric discipline of Kabbalah. Others recoiled from philosophy when tragedy struck, finding that the remote God of Falsifer was unable to console them. During the 13th and 14th centuries, they needed consolation. The Christian wars of reconquest began to push back the frontiers of Islam in Spain and brought the anti-Semitism of Western Europe to the peninsula. Eventually, this would culminate in the destruction of Spanish Jewry. And during the 16th century, the Jews turned away from Falsifer and developed an entirely new conception of God that was inspired by mythology rather than scientific logic. The crusading religion of Western Christendom had separated it from the other monotheistic traditions. The First Crusade of 1096 to 1099 had been the first cooperative act of the New West, a sign that Europe was beginning to recover from the Dark Ages and the fall of Rome. The New Rome, backed by the Christian nations of Northern Europe, was fighting its way back onto the international scene. But the Christianity of the Angles, the Saxons and the Franks was rudimentary. They were aggressive and martial people and they wanted an aggressive religion. During the 11th century, the Benedictine monks of the Abbey of Cluny and its affiliated houses had tried to tether their martial spirit to the church and teach them true Christian values by means of such devotional practices as the pilgrimage. The first crusaders had seen their expedition to the Near East as a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, but they still had a very primitive conception of God and religion. Soldier saints like St. George figured more than God in their piety and, in practice, differed little from pagan deities. Jesus was seen as the feudal lord of the Crusaders rather than as the incarnate Logos. He had summoned his knights to recover his patrimony, the Holy Land, from the infidel. During the long, terrible march to Jerusalem, when the Crusaders only narrowly escaped extinction, they could only account for their survival by assuming that they must be God's chosen people who enjoyed his special protection. When they finally conquered Jerusalem in 1099, they fell on the Jewish and Muslim inhabitants of the city and massacred them with a brutality that shocked even their own contemporaries. Thenceforth, Christians in Europe regarded Jews and Muslims as the enemies of God. For a long time, they also felt a deep antagonism toward the Greek Orthodox Christians of Byzantium, 
who made them feel barbarous and inferior. This had not always been the case. During the 9th century, some of the more educated Christians of the West had been inspired by Greek theology. Thus, the Celtic philosopher, Duns Scotus Origina, who died in 877, had translated many of the Greek fathers of the Church into Latin for the benefit of Western Christians, in particular the works of Denis the Areopagite. Erigena passionately believed that faith and reason were not mutually exclusive. Like the Jewish and Muslim philosophers, he saw philosophy as the royal road to God. Yet, instead of saying that God's existence can be proved, Erigena believed, like Dennis, that our word existence was too limiting for the reality that, for the sake of convenience, we call God. God was not another being. It was more accurate to call God nothing and to say that he does not exist in any sense that we can understand. In Origina's paradoxical theology, God is both everything and nothing. The two terms balance one another out and are held in a creative tension to suggest the mystery that our word God can only symbolize. Origina showed that the Latins had much to learn from the Greeks. But in 1054, Eastern and Western churches broke off relations in a schism which has turned out to be permanent. Behind the political conflict between the two churches, there was a deeper division, since both were developing radically different ideas of God. The Greeks had always distrusted Augustine's Trinitarian theology because it was too anthropomorphic. Where the West began with the notion of God's unity, and then considered the three persons within that unity, the Greeks had always declared that God's unity, his single ousia, was beyond our ken. They thought that the Latins made the Trinity too comprehensible. The Trinity had never been as central to Western spirituality as it has remained for the Greeks. The Greeks felt that by emphasizing the unity of God, the West was identifying God himself with a simple essence that could be defined and discussed, like the god of the philosophers. We shall see that Western Christians were frequently uneasy about the doctrine of the Trinity, and that during the 18th century Enlightenment, many would drop it altogether. To all intents and purposes, many Western Christians are not really Trinitarians. They complain that the doctrine of three persons in one god is incomprehensible, not realizing that for the Greeks, that was the whole point. After the schism, Greeks and Latins took divergent paths. In Greek orthodoxy, theologia, the study of God, remained precisely that. It was confined to the contemplation of God in the essentially mystical doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation. The West, however, was increasingly concerned to form a correct opinion that was binding on everybody. The Reformation, for example, divided Christendom into yet more warring camps because Catholics and Protestants could not agree on the mechanics of how salvation happened and exactly what the Eucharist was. In 1082, the Greek philosopher and humanist John Italos was tried for heresy because of his excessive use of philosophy and his Neoplatonic conception of creation which was alien to the Greek Orthodox Church. It is therefore poignant and ironic 
that Western Christians should have begun to get down to falsifa at the precise moment when Greeks and Muslims were starting to lose faith in it. Aristotle had not been available in Latin during the Dark Ages, so inevitably the West had been left behind. The discovery of philosophy in the 12th century was stimulating and exciting for them. The 11th century theologian Anselm of Canterbury seemed to think that it was possible to prove anything at all. His God was not nothing, but the highest being of all. Even the believer could form an idea of a supreme being, which was one nature, highest of all the things that are, alone sufficient unto itself in eternal beatitude. Yet he also insisted that God could only be known in faith. In his famous prayer, Anselm reflected on the words of Isaiah, Unless you have faith, you will not understand. The oft-quoted maxim, credo ut intelligam, is not an intellectual abdication, however. Anselm's assertion should really be translated, I commit myself in order that I may understand. At this time, the word credo meant an attitude of trust and loyalty, not an intellectual assent to a set of religious opinions. It is important to note that even in the first flush of Western rationalism, the religious experience of God remained primary, coming before discussion or logical understanding. Nevertheless, Anselm believed that the existence of God could be argued rationally, and he devised his own proof, which is usually called the ontological argument. Anselm defined God as something than which nothing greater can be thought. Since this implied that God could be an object of thought, the implication was that he could be conceived and comprehended by the human mind. Anselm argued that this something must exist. Since existence is more perfect or complete than non-existence, the perfect being that we imagine must have existence, or it would be imperfect. Anselm's proof was ingenious and effective in a world dominated by Platonic thought. It's unlikely to convince a skeptic today. Anselm's God was being, therefore, not the nothing described by Dennis and Origina. Anselm was willing to speak about God in far more positive terms than most of the previous philosophers. He seemed to think it possible to arrive at a fairly adequate idea of God by means of natural reason, which was precisely what had always troubled the Greeks about the Western theology. Once he had proved God's existence to his satisfaction, Anselm set out to demonstrate the doctrines of the Incarnation and the Trinity, which the Greeks had always insisted defied reason and conceptualization. In his treatise, Why God Became Man, he relies on logic and rational thought more than revelation. Few thinkers have made such a lasting contribution to Western Christianity as the 13th century philosopher and theologian Thomas Aquinas, who attempted a synthesis of Augustine and the Greek philosophy which had recently been made available in the West. The Summa Theologiae of Thomas Aquinas was an attempt to integrate the new philosophy with the Western Christian tradition. Aquinas had been particularly impressed by Ibn Rushd's explication of Aristotle. 
Yet, unlike Anselm and Abelard, Aquinas did not believe that such mysteries as the Trinity could be proved by reason. He agreed with Dennis that God's real nature was inaccessible to the human mind. Aquinas's attempt to set his religious experience in the context of the new philosophy was necessary in order to articulate faith with other reality and not relegate it to an isolated sphere of its own. If God is not to become an indulgent endorsement of our own egotism, religious experience must be informed by an accurate assessment of its content. Aquinas defined God by returning to God's own definition of himself to Moses. I am what I am. Aristotle had said that God was necessary being. Aquinas accordingly linked the God of the philosophers with the God of the Bible by calling God he who is. Unfortunately, however, Aquinas gives the impression that God can be discussed in the same way as other philosophical ideas or natural phenomena by prefacing his discussion of God with a demonstration of God's existence from natural philosophy. Aquinas lists five proofs for God's existence that would become immensely important in the Catholic world and would also be used by Protestants. First, Aristotle's argument for a prime mover. Second, a similar proof which maintains that there cannot be an infinite series of causes. There must have been a beginning. Third, the argument from contingency propounded by Ibn Sina which demands the existence of a necessary being. Fourth, Aristotle's argument from the philosophy that the hierarchy of excellence in the world implies a perfection that is the best of all. Fifth, the argument from design, which maintains that the order and purpose that we see in the universe cannot simply be the result of chance. These proofs do not hold water today. Even from a religious point of view, they're rather dubious, since, with the possible exception of the argument from design, each proof tacitly implies that God is simply another being, the highest being of all. This is reductive and can make this super-being an idol, created in our own image. It's probably not inaccurate to suggest that many people in the West regard God as a being in this way. Aquinas's Franciscan contemporary, Bonaventure, who died in 1274, had much the same vision. He also tried to articulate philosophy with religious experience to the mutual enrichment of both spheres. Bonaventure also applied Anselm's ontological proof for the existence of God to his discussion of Francis of Assisi, whose life he saw as an epiphany. The very fact that we could form such a concept as the best proved that it must exist in the supreme perfection of God. If we entered into ourselves, as Plato and Augustine had both advised, we would find God's image reflected in our own inner world. This introspection was essential. The Christian must first descend into the depths of his own self, where he would find a vision of God that transcended our limited human notions. Both Bonaventure and Aquinas had seen the religious experience as primary. They had been faithful to the tradition of falsifer, since philosophers had often been mystics who were acutely conscious of the limitations of the intellect. They had evolved rational proofs of God's existence 
to articulate their religious faith with their scientific studies and to link it with other, more ordinary experiences. They didn't personally doubt God's existence, and many were well aware of the limitations of their achievement. These proofs were not designed to convince unbelievers, since there were as yet no atheists in our modern sense. This natural theology, therefore, was not a prelude to religious experience, but an accompaniment. The philosophers didn't believe that you had to convince yourself of God's existence rationally before you could have a mystical experience. If anything, it was the other way around. In the Jewish, Muslim and Greek Orthodox worlds, the God of the philosophers was rapidly being overtaken by the God of the mystics. Judaism, Christianity and, to a lesser extent, Islam have all developed the idea of a personal God, so we tend to think that this ideal represents religion at its best. The personal God has helped monotheists to value the sacred and inalienable rights of the individual and to cultivate an appreciation of human personality. The Judeo-Christian tradition has thus helped the West to acquire the liberal humanism it values so highly. These values were originally enshrined in a personal God who does everything that a human being does. He loves, judges, punishes, sees, hears, creates and destroys, as we do. Yahweh began as a highly personalized deity with passionate human likes and dislikes. Later, he became a symbol of transcendence, whose thoughts were not our thoughts and whose ways soared above our own as the heavens tower over the earth. It is possible to read the Jewish scriptures as the story of the refinement and, later, of the abandonment of the tribal and personalized Yahweh. Christianity tried to qualify the cult of God incarnate by introducing the doctrine of the transpersonal trinity. Muslims very soon had problems with those passages in the Quran which implied that God sees, hears and judges like human beings. All three of the monotheistic religions developed a mystical tradition, which made their god transcend the personal category. Only a few people are capable of true mysticism, but in all three faiths, with the exception of Western Christianity, it was the god experienced by the mystics which eventually became normative among the faithful, until relatively recently. Historical monotheism was not originally mystical. Judaism, Christianity and Islam are all essentially active faiths, devoted to ensuring that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. The central motif of these prophetic religions is a personal meeting between God and humanity. This God is experienced as an imperative to action. He calls us to himself, gives us the choice of rejecting or accepting his love and concern. This God relates to human beings by means of a dialogue. He utters a word which becomes the chief focus of devotion and which has to be painfully incarnated in the flawed and tragic conditions of earthly life. In Christianity, the most personalized of the three, the relationship with God is characterized by love. But the point of love is that the ego has, in some sense, to be annihilated. In either dialogue or love, egotism is a perpetual possibility. Language itself can be a limiting faculty, 
since it embeds us in the concepts of our mundane experience. The prophets had declared war on mythology. Their god was active in history rather than in the primordial, sacred time of myth. When monotheists turned to mysticism, however, mythology reasserted itself as the chief vehicle of religious experience. Mystical religion is more immediate and tends to be more help in time of trouble than a predominantly cerebral faith. The disciplines of mysticism help the adept to return to the one, the primordial beginning, and to cultivate a constant sense of presence. Yet the early Jewish mysticism that developed during the second and third centuries seemed to emphasize the gulf between God and man. Jews imagined God as a mighty king who could only be approached in a perilous journey through the seven heavens. The mystics used sonorous, grandiloquent language. The rabbis hated this spirituality. Yet this throne mysticism, as it was called, must have fulfilled an important need since it continued to flourish alongside the great rabbinic academies until it was finally incorporated into Kabbalah, the new Jewish mysticism, during the 12th and 13th centuries. The classic texts of throne mysticism suggest that the mystics felt a strong affinity with the rabbinic tradition, however. They revealed a new extremity in the Jewish spirit as they blazed a new trail to God on behalf of their people. The mystic had to journey to the throne of God through the mythological realm of the seven heavens. Yet this was only an imaginary flight. It was never taken literally, but was always seen as a symbolic ascent through the mysterious regions of the mind. Today, we know that the unconscious is a teeming mass of imagery that surfaces in dreams, in hallucinations, and in aberrant psychic or neurological conditions. Jewish mystics didn't really imagine that they were flying through the sky or entering God's palace, but were marshalling the religious images that filled their minds in a controlled and ordered way. This demanded great skill and a certain disposition and training. It required the same kind of concentration as the disciplines of Zen or yoga, which also helped the adept to find his way through the psyche. Although the earliest texts of this throne mysticism date only to the second or third centuries, this kind of contemplation was probably older. Thus, in the first century, St. Paul refers to a friend who'd been caught up to the third heaven. The visions are not ends in themselves, but means to an ineffable religious experience that exceeds normal concepts. They will be conditioned by the particular religious tradition of the mystic. A Jewish visionary will see visions of the seven heavens. Christians visualize the Virgin Mary. It's a mistake for the visionary to see these mental apparitions as anything more than symbols of transcendence. Since hallucination is often a pathological state, considerable skill and mental balance is required to handle and interpret the symbols that emerge during the course of concentrated meditation and inner reflection. Throne mysticism was not unique. The prophet Muhammad is said to have had a very similar experience when he made his night journey from Arabia to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. He'd been transported, he said, in sleep by Gabriel on a celestial horse. On arrival, 
he was greeted by Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and a crowd of other prophets who confirmed Muhammad in his own prophetic mission. Then, Gabriel and Muhammad began their perilous ascent up a ladder through the seven heavens, each of which was presided over by a prophet. Finally, Muhammad reached the divine sphere. The early sources reverently keep silent about the final vision. In the Quran, Muhammad claims that he did not see God himself, but only symbols that pointed to the divine reality. There's no way in which the vision of God can appeal to the normal experiences of thought or language. The ascent to heaven is a symbol of the furthest reach of the human spirit, which marks the threshold of ultimate meaning. The symbol of an ascent indicates that worldly perceptions have been left far behind. The experience of God that is finally attained is utterly indescribable. The Jewish mystics describe anything but God. They tell us about his cloak, his palace, his heavenly court, and the veil that shields him, which represents the eternal archetypes. Muslims who speculated about Muhammad's flight to heaven stressed the paradoxical nature of his final vision of God. He both saw and did not see the divine presence. Once the mystic has worked through the realm of imagery, he reaches the point where neither concepts nor imagination can take him any further. This was no naturalistic vision of a personalized God. In the flesh, it's Toya, Sheriff of Truth, with us. Yay! Buenos tardes. Uh, hell yeah. So, yeah, talking to that one to make sure that it, I heard you for a second. I'm not getting anything. She switched microphones. I got them both up. I know. Two and three, they're always a pain. This one probably sounds better. There we go. Okay. Buenos tardes. Let's try that again. There we go. (laughs) Yay! You made it in. I made it in, yes. It's been, um, it's I've been slightly enough. preparing for our other event coming up, Dog Days. DJ Sheriff of Truth will be DJing. Is it called Dog Days because it's in the dog patch? No, it's not in the dog patch. It's actually in the East Cut. So in the it East is, Cut. Um, a brunch for you and your dogs <laughs> um, at the East Cut, formerly <laughs> known as the Greyhound Station. But it seems like we're going to be doing this every um, last Saturday uh, of the month until October. What? How do you serve brunch? Is it at a? What's happening well, there? I'm imagining dogs and poached eggs everywhere. It looks like we have some vendors, food vendors, and Ooh. also at the East Cut, there's like a couple food trucks. Because oh. I was out there doing, uh, I was there last week doing outreach, and uh, you know, I made sure I was like, you know doing outreach over the East Cut and then Soma. But, yeah, it looks like it's going to be dope. I've already noticed, like, you know, the whole pickleball thing is – I got to see it for myself. It's really pop – that's really popular. P- and there's, pickle, like, pickleball, pickleball tournaments that – I don't know we'll be doing anything with our event, but I'm sure someone will. But that's coming up on the 26th. My yeah. favorite street gra- game is cornhole. I like cornhole. I like Foursquare. I like Foursquare, too. Foursquare is oh. – Yeah. Foursquare oh, is – is a bomb game. Yeah. 
So when you do these events like that, it, will there be alcohol vendors or is it just food? You're well, going to have DJs, so there's going to be dancing, there's going to be dog dancing. Are there going to be <laughs> there like There will be a dog, there dog is contest. a dog fashion show. Oh, stuff. fuck yeah, there yeah, is. So, yeah, and I was actually, what was really nice about when I was doing the outreach last week was I was literally passing out flyers to people that had dogs because yes. obviously they live in these high rises over here and they have their animals so but you know yes and i got a like positive response they have a rough rough life yeah right you know the <laughs> best the best place to go for that which is a huge high rise which is pet friendly is the one that's it's in the soma and it's just off of market it's the whole block and it has that beautiful five-story silver um has a silver statue in the center of it and people walk their dogs there and there's um, three different apartment buildings all around it, and it's all dog-friendly, and they're all tiny dogs. And that is, and it's right where the Whole Foods just left. The Whole oh, Foods was in that basement. Okay. But there are huge high-rises there. It looks like yeah. a prison, but it's not. It's filled with rich people. And there's beautiful art on the way where you could have gone downstairs to Whole Foods, which is now closed. That's ninth or 8th. Eighth it's, it's in between. Yeah. yeah, it's 8th and Market, in between Market and Van Ness. It's the whole block, and it's all dog-friendly. And they have these beautiful statues when you walk through it. And it's they're the absence of statues because they're these glass things and they're carved on the inside. So it's the absence of a statue. But they look like Greek in nature. It's really cool. I always walk past there. And walk I through there. There's okay. another beautiful piece of art that looks like two, like four huge um, stick-on eyelashes all together. <laughs> but they're huge and silver. And then there's the huge silver woman. And then all around her in marble are these really interesting marble figures trying to get out of the marble. It's really beautiful. They're one of them is a threesome. It's really hot. And people walk their dogs around there, and there's all of these. Anyway, so, okay. it's considered Soma. So, okay, no, because I'm, I'm, I'm literally, my warehouse and where I work is literally right by there, and I always, if I'm going elsewhere to take a train, I either walk past there on 9th or 8th going to market. So it's, is it tucked it. away? But it's it, it kind of, but there's an entrance that's right there on, um, mission too so you can go in Aha. off mission and okay. you see the big lady or you can be going by on market and you look and you see the statues that aren't statues that are statues hell meta and then you go to the other it always every time i walk through there because you, you're not allowed to smoke and they always have a um a guard uh -huh. but i love i love walking by these statues and i and i'm saying to myself my favorite mark strand poem is this it's very short uh in a field, I am the absence of field. This is always the case. Wherever I am, I am what is missing. When I move, the air parts and always moves back in to fill the spaces where my body's been. We all have reasons for moving. I move to keep things whole. It's called keeping things whole, but H-W-O-E-L-E. Anyways, Not it's a beautiful whole. poem. And <laughs> so I walk by those the absence of statues, and I'm like, oh, my God, it's so beautiful. Um, anyways, walk you, through you, there and see if you can contact them because they all have dogs. I actually thank you very much because that means I can go over there, maybe, like, pass out some flyers, talk to some people, and because I have until the 26th of uh, August is when the first one, Saturday, August 26th is the first one. So When you see that statue, it's really funny because you can look up her nose. She has She's, like, five stories tall, and she looks like, the soul of every statue, um, but it's like five stories and it's silver, like a big mirror. And when you walk around her, you can look 
and you can get right underneath your nose and you can look up and they gave her nostrils, which I think is hilarious. That's kind of cool. Thank you for that. Yeah. Because now I, I found the area that stuck to this. Promo. You can even just sit in that little courtyard that they have and wait for people with dogs to come out because they all live there and it's a little thingy. It's not even real grass. It's fake grass for the doggies. It's like a Sydney courtyard is. Yes. Kind of with beautiful, Ooh. beautiful art. So I'm just like. That's funny that that's tucked away in contrast to like when you're on eighth and ninth mission, you're like, Ooh, God, oh God, oh, 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 yeah, Christ. it's right across the street from the scary thing, which is that big building that was a power electric building or still is. And the people live on the side of it and it has the twisty silver things that uh, the birds that. live behind it uh, right across from the place you get the EBT and everyone's doing the I mean. It, that's a scary street. The people with the scabs and the you know yes. they're shooting heroin into there and you're looking at their and it makes me think like my life is so good. It's, <laughs> it's, you know what's funny is I just oh kind of sad. She just moved to New York City last Ooh. night uh, for grad school. Rad. So she's <gasps> going to Columbia. Oh my so god, how exciting. So I'm like I'm kinda sad, but I'm happy for her because it's a new chapter. She's been here for seven years the majority of her 20s here yeah so you can visit her now now you have a place exactly. to hang out in new york so i i also told her you know you know you living here in sf for seven years you can live anywhere but in new york you have more assholes and there's more people get a knife oh <laughs> wow just because i'm like of course oh. you know i carry a taser with me right here yeah but it's just Smart. also you know people though people talk about oh it's so much not as violent and it's it's so much easier go outside at like you know take the train by yourself but yeah, like come out of the bar at four in the morning i was just that part i trust Brooklyn nobody ain't so safe anymore at four in the morning when you're getting out of the bar out of the uh, out of the galapagos shit here 11 o'clock a.m yeah, right. <laughs> or p.m i will say though that williamsburg is absolutely 100 percent gentrified now just as look at look at this corner i mean honestly <laughs> the corner that we exist on right now is like this new bougie. People are like, have no problem paying $14 for French toast. Okay. All right. They have no problem forking out $11 for a coffee and a pastry, which is wild to me. But at least they're really good pastries. Coffee shop, she makes her own puff pastry every night, and I they're still phenomenal. I pay $20 for a turkey sandwich because it's a turkey sandwich. Now, if I'm because it's a turkey like sandwich. It's different if I'm like someplace like high end or what have you. I'm gonna sit down and have a loan and yeah. have a beverage. Blah, blah, blah. But if I'm just like at work and I'm like, I want a turkey sandwich, I just I just can't break myself down. But I also said to her, I'm like, you know, food. <laughs> I'm so jealous that not only does she get to enjoy. Well, she comes from Chicago, where we have mm. four or five a.m. But being a place like New York City, you know, not only do you have to get to enjoy all the different cultures and the food, it's the fact that you have places late, and I miss mm -hmm. that. Yeah. I miss, you know, oh, my God, I, t I took a nap until 9 p.m., but I got this energy, and I want to go out. I don't have that option here. No, you really don't. It's, well, there's a couple 24-hour places, but they're few and far between, <laughs> and they're mostly, like, even Pinecrest used to be open 24 hours. Now they are not. I gee, I wonder why. Yeah, I know, <laughs> because the street I live on is abhorrently because disgusting. It, yeah. The poop I had to, I mean, I was playing hopscotch on the way here in these stupid big girl shoes. Oh, really? Wild. 
wild and just and it's my my street it's very it's it's it's, a, it's obscene what the food prices are happening here in San Francisco but it also is translating right into the grocery stores like oh god everything's gone up at Trader Joe's and I feel like we're these two old women talking about well, the price of groceries and you can't use coupons at Trader Joe's can't use the coupons they don't have any coupons but they're it's just even milk is pricier everything is up. I everything that. is up 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 yeah. I noticed that when I went to the store last week. I'm like, this is a little bit more expensive than usual. Yeah. But I'm also at the same time, now that I don't have to cook for, like, you know, three of us, Marcus and I now. Yeah. You know, now I mean, this does help that I cut back a little bit on my grocery bill. Yeah. I mean, just a little bit because I know what, how I shop. Um, But it's just like, even like, I was looking at the price. Like I was looking for things to barbecue. I was just like, oh, my oh God. yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ, this is the, the best. The best way to go for for barbecuing, uh, grocery outlet has um, half of slabs of ribs, and they're depending on the weight, they're usually between fourteen and sixteen dollars. I get the ones that don't have that aren't the pre barbecue flavored, oh, yeah. because I don't I want don't the, the I that. salt, I and like their that. salt has I'm sure a lot of sugar. I would wash it off anyway, but it it does that salt will definitely brine your meat anyway. I usually just go with the straight up ones, uh, and it's like again between fourteen and sixteen dollars for a, a half a rack, so it's half a pig of worth of stuff. And I just dry rub it, and then I do it on the I cut it in half, and then I do it on the grill here. And I did, I did some last week, um, and it's just you, and I do it on the little tiny Smoky Joe, mm, and I just good. flip. Uh, yeah, every I just put them on. When I get the coals ready, put them on, cover on every ten minutes, flip them. Every ten minutes, flip them, yeah. and it's it is really time consuming, and you have to watch the clock. But it makes a huge difference because you never burn it, and it gets perfectly like this like crispy bark on the outside, and then the yep, inside's really nice. Really so, and then it's you know not like fall fall off the bone because that means they're overdone, but like just, just enough. yeah, exactly. When you put your teeth in it, and you pull. comes comes off. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, this is barbecue weather, shit. Yeah, like, exactly. Like today, I woke up all sad and like. Oh I looked into a room and everything was gone. And so I, I was like, oh, man. And then I went for a jog. Uh, and also, well, working. I'm also working, you guys. But, but now you have an extra room. I do. So How now exciting. it's Marcus's office. So I get to Great. take all his clothes out from our bedroom into his office. Awesome. He's taking that. So now I get to take the whole bedroom closet. Amazing. Thank God. Yeah. But, um, That's great. But it, it's just like this whole year, to me, by the time August comes, the year is basically over. It's wild, isn't it? It's just been so many changes and so new chapters changes. for people. Yes. This year. Agreed. And I'm just like having a moment. Yeah. I'm I've got to I've been making some big ass decisions. Um Go. and like that's but that's good because when I re I'm recognizing like problematic things and I have the ability to change them. So Therefore. Give me, give me. Uh, so, um, Go for I it. realized the whole purpose and point of the grant was to take the pressure off the rent in this space, so that I could figure out how to make the space sustainable. And in doing that, over the months, six months that we've had the grant in action now, what I've recognized is that this space is not sustainable from what's happening in it right now. Mm -hmm. The comedy that I'm providing, the things I'm doing, the the processes I have to sustain the building are not adequate to make it happen there has to be external without someone else paying the rent it does not work here so there has to be a way because it's not going to be like that forever the grant goes away right right 
that's so what I have until February. So I realized, like, holy shit, I have until February to figure out how to make this space make sense. So I'm going to do the teaching thing, like I right. told you guys last week, two weeks ago, whatever. Time moves too fast. <laughs> but exactly. so with the teaching component set up, it, it starts in um, the end of October. It would run through December. If it's successful and we can continue that model into January, then everything's great. If I can't sell it, if it doesn't work, if I can't get butts in seats, and it doesn't look like something that could actually be sustainable where, because I can only have six to ten people in a class at a time. So it's, it's limited, you know. And I have two, starting with two classes, and it's limited stuff. So, but I could teach it again, take it in January, and then I can teach it again, take it in March. You know, every two months it would cycle through, and it would be a way that would pay the rent on the space. So I, I would absolutely keep it because I would have the ability within myself without begging – Without begging and without doing grants, because those are really hard and really time-consuming, and they're not easy. And it's not a guarantee. And it's not a guarantee, and it's not easy. And so I – but banking on my skills is the easiest thing I can do. So if I can make that work, then absolutely, the space is sustainable. Fucking great. If not, in February, I mean, it'll be hard to lose this space, but I can easily run my joke workshop and happy hour in any bar of my choosing. Mutiny Radio is me. I'll just change the business license to be my house. Then I can use the grant money that I got that's for Pam Benjamin and not for Mutiny Radio to pay for my own rent mm -hmm. or to pay for Mutiny Radio without, can still exist without these walls. That's true. It, it can even exist. I can even play. We have so many podcasts. I could keep the internet with it going forever and people could send me podcasts they do from home and I could just program them and play them from my house we wouldn't need a board it would be it's fine we don't i've it's taken me so long to recognize that i don't need this that this space isn't the end-all be-all for me in fact i might thrive without it so less stress yeah because what am i keeping it open for me because i use it for the festival the festival would be more difficult next year if I didn't have a storefront, for sure. It'll yeah. be a totally different ballgame of organization. and But it just means we don't have the space. I, I mean, I can adapt to anything. But this would mean that you could possibly, like, find a space over here in the neighborhood temporarily with some of the people's sponsors that you've worked with before. Sure, exactly, exactly. Know, that you have a good relationship with. Absolutely. Atlas, Asiento, anything. Yeah, yeah, those are, like, the two places I was actually thinking right, of. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, because, like, this space has been here for 10 years plus. Yeah. So you've already made a name for yourself. Right. And the name comes with me. Yeah. It's just this space that isn't, unless I find a way to make it, su make it sustainable, it's not. We only have nine DJs playing. It's, it just doesn't make sense for me to keep spinning my wheels and working my ass off to keep something that is so that people can have a hobby, that a few people can have a hobby. And, and I, I don't mean to break it down and make it shitty like that, but... Also, if we don't have the space and they want to do podcasts, Radio Valencia is right there. BFFFM, the other one, it's fine. Go, I'm o it's okay. Mutiny Radio will still exist, but we'll be producing movies and I'll be doing open mics every night of the week and I'll, I'll be able to actually thrive as a comedian as opposed to spending so much of my energy on keeping this space alive. And I don't think it needs to be. Um, oh. <laughs> I was going to say that 
possibly think of being in international, like, you know. Well, yeah, that's the thing is that when I have this $20,000 grant, if I don't have to spend it on the rent here and I can spend it on my own personal rent, that means that I can actually travel as a comedian. I can go anywhere. I, I, my own rent is paid for and I don't have to worry about this albatross and I can still run all my open mics with other people running them in other places just like they do now and I can organize it the way that I do. It just means I have to get internet at my house. It's not that big of a deal. So it's like, ah, what do I need the storefront for? And because it's been, honestly, it, it drags, it's an albatross. It, it's time for Pam to fly. Like I'm mm -hmm. sick of putting my dreams behind the dreams of nine people that come and talk and have a hobby. It doesn't make sense. It, this space, it makes sense for the festival. I love this space, but it doesn't, it's too expensive. Oh, may I ask how much? The overhead on the place, all told, with rent and everything else, is like 3500 a month. Oh, that's And that's not th even that's paying me. That's the average of, oh my God. And that's, so I'm paying my own rent at home, and I'm paying this rent every month. And I know it's mind-blowing, and it just makes no sense. And this is really very, very funny. I told one of the very, he's, it's a DJ who's been here for a very long time, and he was talking about it or whatever, and he goes, well, what if, like, I go out and I find someone with, like, $60,000? And I was like, you could have done that. If you do that, then you're an asshole because you could have done that five years ago. Like, where's the help? Like, once I say, like, no, really, this keeping this space open, it doesn't serve me. It doesn't even really right now serve the community. Like, it's closed most of the time. I, I can't be here all the time. And that's the thing is, like, what can I use this space for that makes it have validity? And mm -hmm. what gives it the weight to exist? And the only thing that can do it that I understand is education. Right. So that either it works yeah, or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, I'm washing my hands. I have until February. But then I've got to get rid of, I mean, this is a lot of stuff. This is a lot of stuff. This building has a lot of stuff in it. So it's like, Garage whoa, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Selling it off, baby. Yeah, I you mean, might, it's... You might want to keep one of the turntables. Well, I'll keep... I don't know what I'll keep, honestly. I don't know. Because... I mean, obviously, uh, probably all the microphones. I keep a lot of it. I mean, what yeah. am I? Uh, the, all the stuff that I can use because I'm going to be running. I'm still mutiny radio will still exist. It just won't have a storefront, which is fine, unless, unless, unless. Hey, everybody, uh, you can go to mutinyradio.fm if you want to take a comedy class or a poetry class. Here, three hundred to five hundred dollars sliding scale, six weeks, twelve hours of instruction. Uh, and the deliverables are, if you're in the poetry class, you're going to have at least six poems, six to 12, depending on how hard you want to work. If you want to work and do both prompts all the time, you can do, you can have 12 poems at the end. And we'll choose the best poems, we'll make a chapbook, we'll have a performance, everyone will get a copy of the book. It'll be really fun and amazing, and you'll learn a lot about poetry. And then comedy, same thing, 12 hours of instruction, you're going to get a hot three-minute set, a hot five-minute set that you'll write yourself. You'll have it memorized. You'll be stage ready to do a show after six weeks. On the seventh week, we'll have a show here. People will watch you. You'll get a tape that you can use to submit to things. And guess what? You'll be actually really good at it because I'll be teaching you all of the tricks I know from 12 years of doing stand-up comedy. All the things. All the things. And I'll help you because I have an MFA in poetry, an MA in fiction. And I used to teach high school. 
and I'm very accomplished at English writing. I've had two books published. Let's do it. Let's work on your stuff. And it's going to be hard. Your auditions. Yeah, you're going to be ready. I will. When you come out of the school of when you at Joke Academy, Mutiny Joke Academy, Wowzers, you are stage ready to go to any open mic and blow the socks off them. And don't ever tell anyone how long you've been doing comedy, you dumb, dumb people. Keep it a fucking secret. It doesn't matter. If you're funny, you're funny. It doesn't matter. If you work your ass off in six weeks and you have a hot five and you're murdering it, don't tell people you've only doing it for six weeks. Just be like, you know, I do comedy. Whatever. Avoid the fucking question. It, it doesn't help you. you. The amount of time you've been doing it has no bearing on your talent or your ability on stage. So stop doing that. Anyway, these are some of the secrets that people can learn in my comedy. Anyway. That's awesome. Thank you. I'm okay. excited. I want this place to exist. It's not that I don't. It's just that I've recognized over time what it what's happening here. Changes. <laughs> yeah, like all changes and possibly new chapters that will be happening. It's kind of weird, like, you know, I don't know. I'm gonna move on. Yeah, I'm yeah, like yeah. Kind of emotional today. I'll get out of I my. I know things hat. are. No, it's. I. I wish I would have brought my tarot cards. I could have done like a little. Th- I've been getting crazy cards, like the tower, things falling apart, blah blah blah. But you know, pick up the pieces, put them back together. Everything's gonna be fine. Super glue. <laughs> it's all. It's all good. It's. You, it's you know who might not be fine. Who? Oh right. This is very funny. I know what you're gonna say only because I don't have internet. And uh, my phone doesn't ding ding and tell me important things or not important things. I have no access to that on purpose. And I was looking over Lauren Kraut's shoulder last night at the open mic that we were at, where we both murdered it, by the way. I know it's just an open mic, but still, they were all musicians, and they're just like, "You're so talented." And we're like, "I know we are." <laughs> um, I did. We didn't say that. We were very humble about it. But yes, both of us were very funny last. So I look over her shoulder and I saw something indictment something, mm-hmm. and she goes, "Ugh," and she just put it away. And I was like, "So it's Trump indictment." Yes. So tell me, tell me. So now we're in Georgia. And so, um, so we're in Georgia for what? Yeah. So this is the fourth indictment. So this one is different. We've been going. This is a Brady song, but re indicted and it feels (laughs) so good. (laughs) Re indicted because Trump's understood. You can't get away telling lies every day. Everything you want to hide, you can't, cause you're re-indicted. Hey, are you? Have you used that? No, I haven't. But Brady sings a song, but my lyrics are better because he sings it, but he doesn't go with the cadence like I just did with the lie and the rhyme. You just ad libbed. I did. I did. That's called improv. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Re-indicted. This one, this is the fourth indictment, but this is in Georgia, and this one is going to be a little bit different because. It is, it, it might cause some hysteria, which <gasps> is, because mind you, this is, Georgia is the state where he was having people, you know, I think one of the secretaries of state, he was threatening them uh, to, uh, to turn the election. And then Rudy <gasps> Giuliani was threatening these two uh, black poll workers and they were getting harassed. So this story is from uh, the Mi- yeah, Miami Herald. So Donald Trump and the state ca- uh, case filed in the deep blue Fulton County, Georgia, shout out to Atlanta, could be the biggest threat to his freedom. The charges over his attempts to overturn the tw- uh, state's 2020 election, President 
a district set to challenges for the former president. Not only will he be tried in a county where three out of every four voters supported his opponent, but <laughs> should a jury convict him, he will lack the tools currently at his disposal. Meaning there's going to be a lot of people that look like me and who are progressive that will be probably jurors. For not saying that, but but um, let's see. Uh, you know what? They should get a bunch of Mexicans, and he <laughs> and you could be like, yeah, call us rapists now, call us drug dealers, say, and they're mm-hmm. tell us now. Okay, but he doesn't like black people, so he called no, us thugs. So I mean, mm-hmm. let's yeah, let's make it you, you thug out. You say, and the oh. woman, the attorney general that's in Georgia is a, a black woman. Hell yeah, so she she's on. Uh, so, so that's like twice over. You had um. What's her face in New York City, uh, Attorney General, and now you have, um, I, I think check, her name was Willis. Check this shit out, though. Felons cannot vote, but there is no law that says a person can't be the president right. or run for president from jail. All That's it means exactly. is that he cannot vote for himself. That's correct. That's it. And he can, I mean, that's something that Which is insane about. because Martha Stewart, they made, once you're, out of jail and you're a felon, you cannot be the president. You cannot be a convicted felon. No, that doesn't make sense, though, because then if you can't, if you can be a convicted felon and run for president, then Martha Stewart, get on it. So let's see. Um, Fulton County District Attorney, her name, I'm sorry, her, she's a district attorney. Her name is Fannie Willis, has charged Trump with crimes at the state level where Trump's Lompolocal showdown has less influence. Willis charged Trump of eight uh, and 18 of associates, including that dumbass Rudy Giuliani, on Monday under Georgia's racketeering Ooh. statute. Rico, this you all know has to do with the taxes. Do you know, motherfucker? No that's racketeering great. and Isn't criminal en- enterprise. Yes, and uh, along with election it's results. Follow the money. What Plus, he was threatening. And here's here's something else. Just a fun fact. If you guys are familiar with Rudolph Giuliani, back in the day, back in the 80s, Rudolph Giuliani was one of the people that created RICO to go after mobs and criminal enterprises. Because of the crack e- epidemic. No, 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 no. Before the crack epidemic. He mm. started with the mobsters. Okay. Yeah, where he was getting like, that's how he got John Gotti, the oh, Gambino family, racketeering. Oh, because um, of the RICO. Yeah. So, and then also Wall Street dudes as well. Yes. Um, but come full circle, the same guy that was kind of like him being kind of the voice and the creator of it, now he's being charged. Well, who better to write the laws than the person that's breaking the laws? That's who writes the laws, baby doll. Yeah. Like, that's that's crazy. Oh, that's so, the irony and beauty of that is just fantastic. <gasps> Rudy Giuliani could be in jail? Yeah, he lost his bar license. He can't, he can't practice law. Well, he's the old and rich, is isn't he? going broke. It's, wow. it's great. Um, let's see. Georgia's governor <sighs> will have no authority to pardon Trump. He, by the way, uh, Brian Kemp is a Republican. He's the uh, governor of Georgia. So, which means he has no authority to pardon Trump if a jury convicts him. <gasps> Instead of an independent board of pardons and paroles may consider gathering relief to individuals convicted in the state only after they serve a minimum of five years of prison wow. sentence. The state prosecution is also shielded from presidential pardon power or from a friendly Justice Department should a newly elected president decide to withdraw persecution. Ooh, child. And attempt, uh, Trump's attempt to 
excuse me, Trump's ability to move or appeal the case into federal court system will be limited, with wow. the Supreme Court empowered to take up state cases only when constitutional matters are at play. Right. So to This isn't constitutional. This is like racketeering. This yes. is this is tax evasion. This is money. You can't call on Long, Clarence Thomas right, or exactly. Alito. Mm-hmm. You can't call on uh, I like beer, dude. All of the and all of his, all the people that he wooed into his Marlboro Lago while he was president, using his own fund, his own place to he profited off being president, which is one of the impeachable offenses, and we didn't impeach him. And where, anyways, he's a bad hombre, and it's time to say. He has to be held accountable. Otherwise, all the lies, he just lies all the time. Just said he would just say whatever without any facts to back anything up. He just, that's one of the problems of inciting the riot on the 6th is that he just lies and says things and has, there's no accountability for what he's saying. But there needs to be accountability. If we don't hold people accountable for what they say, then what's the fucking point of society? What's the point of even having it? If there is no accountability, why even have a law system? If everyone could just lie to each other and steal things and there's no, there's Perjury, no I, I, think, I think people need to realize, especially these Republican cunts, need to realize that I love when they say freedom of speech. I'm like, lying can be part of fetal, uh, fetal <laughs> uh, freedom of speech, but perjury is a crime. Right. Perjury means if what? You, right, if you're asked a question in under oath. law, under oath, and you lie and you're caught, then you're perjured. You lied in court, bad, bad, bad. Um, but also you're not supposed to lie on your taxes. And also when you run a business, you know how hard, and that's the thing that makes me so angry. You know how fucking hard it is to run a business? I do, and I'm trying to keep Mutiny Radio afloat. And it's tough. And he's a rich person, and he's doing all these things, and he's being shady. Now, I'm being on the up and up because I don't know how to do it any other way. But all, how, do, how do these rich people stay rich? Because they're you can pay people filthy. Off. It's called filthy rich for a reason because they're dirty, underhanded people. Otherwise... He'd be helping. He wouldn't have started a fake university and scammed people out of money. He wouldn't have. He's still scamming his supporters now. Like yeah. a lot of the money that they still have no. for, uh, like the his Trump fund and his Trump coins and all this stuff no. he came out with after he lost the election. And yes, he lost. Um, he that all all that money has been going to his legal fees. Wow. And some of the campaign money. And here's something else we gotta talk about. Some of the funds are I think that's also what's going on here not with the Georgia case but I mean he got indicted what four times because some of them has to do with campaign funds right so it's I money he's a crooked he's a crooked been. dude he, if we knew that he said grab him by the pussy like we we knew this is not a good person when he talks he says ridiculous things that are not founded by fact he just throw things out marital really nilly that were offensive and horrible to all kinds of minorities. He's clearly a racist. Uh, there's rapist. All ki- rapist. There's all kinds of things that are going on. And I'm not going to try any presidents on their infidelity, whatever. If you're the most powerful person in the United States, there's going to be, I mean. You're going to get somebody. You're gonna RFK, get some- JFK, also, they really fucked over Marilyn Monroe. Not great guys, but... Who is? Bill How can you be a politician and be a great guy? But you still have to hold them accountable for when they're egregiously offensive. Yeah, I mean, like, well, <laughs> we don't ever want to talk about the Kennedys because they like they did a lot of dirt. <laughs> they did do a lot, yeah. You know, and 
they're always i like the fact that you mentioned marilyn monroe because there's always that conspiracy theory <gasps> about I watched they possibly might I, have had something to do with i watched it. the t- i watched the show on the netflix where they took all the tapes of all the people that were around her and you can piece together what and they t- basically she okay i, I it, they say it's alleged that they drugged her and forced her to have an abortion and she woke up and like they'd taken a baby from her that was a Kennedy baby. We don't know which one because both of them both of them were both <laughs> of them were having sex with her. Yeah. Yeah, Bobby and, and John. Right. And they both and she was upset and she talked to one of her hairdressers something and he talked on a tape and he was like she was really broken and felt like people were using her and that she was and so she's this big huge star, but they're treating her like dirt and they were they were like they, you know, they guys. Okay. They love their blowies by the most famous woman in the world, and it's like very. They love to subjugate women. It's just a thing guys like to do. They wanted to see that that was happening. She was like in love with them, or whatever was happening. There was a lot of drugs involved. I mean, poor Marilyn. Poor, poor Marilyn. You know, and and I guess poor Kennedys too. And I saw some stuff. Then they used to be. They were doing speed because that was back before that stuff. There was like doctors were prescribing it, and so the Kennedys were like. Jackie O talks about anyways, done a lot of like weird conspiracy e research, yeah. but there's a lot of first or second hand accounts because obviously Marilyn's dead. But they say that um she, you know, they might have given her um an enema with drugs in it to kill her or something that they I've heard that they possibly might have had an enema, but it was likely. But with that being said, the difference, it, well, I can't even say they weren't, you know, they didn't assault her in contrast to what Trump has done, where yeah. he is actually, he has to pay up E. Jean Carroll. Uh, she was, um, he's assaulted her in uh, uh, oh, a dressing room. Did he grab her by the pussy? Unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, so that's the thing. He said he did it. He says... So that's the thing. Of course, he should be tried, and but he's not going to get convicted for that. That's assault. We got he got in a civil suit. He this year about a couple months ago he lost because okay, E. Jean Carroll she uh, put a suit against him. Good. This happened back in the nineties, which I think there was something that a loophole in the statute of limitations. But anyways, oh. um, but he now has to pay her Good. millions of dollars, Great. and she might sue him again. Good because after he lost, like a two day two days after that. He went on CNN on this town hall saying, like, oh, I would never. Like, again, just Lying. basically disparaging her character. Oh. Slander, yeah, which she sure. filed up another suit yeah. against him. And so it's just It's like hard to fight the power, but she's got to fight the power. Yeah, all these things are coming at him. And hopefully the whole Good. Georgia thing, because what they're also saying in Georgia is they're not playing with him. Like, he will get a mugshot. He will be fingerprinted, Good. and if he has to be in the jail like most of us need to, he will be. And he's going to die just like Jeffrey Epstein. It'll be some magical, oh, good, now he's suddenly dead. Because is he going to – don't you think he'll so. spill the beans no, on everybody? I don't think so. I Do you think, think he knows any beans to spill? Did he ever go to the Epstein Island? Um, I feel like they're all still trying oh to cover yeah, that I up. Oh, yeah, I think he did, but I don't think it's anything like Epstein I because their, their personalities are too that's sure, sure, sure. Um, and nobody really knew Epstein. Oh, only the elite rich people did. Huh. So he wasn't a public figure in contrast to Trump. Right, we, right. We He's now know who he is. Sure. But um, 
but at the same time, you do give me you do give me an idea of like he's Trump is such a punk ass bitch. Mm -hmm. He just because he looks like a strong man on the outside, but deep down he's just mm -mm. A, a broken bastard who wants his daddy. I'm wondering if wants he his would daddy's be money. like, I'll tell you things about other people because he's the kind of person he's not loyal to anyone. Sure. He's not loyal to anyone. Like I could see him flipping on Rudy Giuliani even more. Yeah, but how can we oh. even trust anything he would say about anybody? So he's an too. unreliable witness. He's an unreliable character. That he was made the president of the United States in his unreliable state is mind-blowing to me. Also, I mean, I don't know if it's for sure, but I love the rumors about him being an Adderall freak. Oh, that. I believe that. 100%. I really believe that because there's no way. I mean... It makes sense how he stayed thin, like throughout the oh, 80s and 90s. Oh, because well, he was younger too, sure. You know, all the way up to like The Apprentice, he started to get a little bit chubby. Mm -hmm. And plus, it also makes sense. <sighs> right, sure. With how he breathes heavy, you know, like right. when we, every time you hear him speak, and <laughs> it's just like. I am so excited for him to go to real, real jail, jail. I'm hoping. That would be like. Just the icing, it would it would just make it like so great. But it, it's he's it, his effects, his detrimental effects have made their waves, and they exist. I think that it's very sad, and I see. You know, you see the degradation of society as we move along. There was Bush, what he did with the No Child Left Behind, and he oh. made all those dumb people who just look at their phones, and then we had the Trump with the fake it till you make it. You don't actually have to know anything. Just lie about it and you'll be fine. Do we have this like whole group of people who are not truly qualified to do anything, but all believe that they're the most qualified. I am so sick of 26-year-olds wanting to get paid and not doing any motherfucking work. You get paid to work. Here are the deliverables that I asked for. Did you do them? No. You're going to cry, oh, I had a bad time on the bus. Fuck you, you fucking snowflake. Get the job done. You're yelling at me. Uh -oh. I can't. You're Something fired. Happened. You're fucking fired. Uh -oh. No, it's just children. It's the children. They're all the kids under 30. They're like, I've been doing this for six weeks. I'm an expert. No, you're not. You know, it takes 10,000 hours. <laughs> you got to keep doing something. It's the same people when I was when I was teaching, and it, I saw it in college, and this is 10 years ago, and this is all 10 years later, and this is all the same kids, and I'd say, hey, this paper isn't good enough. You can change it by this. Right now, it's a C. You can change it. You can make the edits, and it'll be an A, and then won't that be great? And they'd be like, no. I'll take the C because they're lazy pieces of shit and their parents told them they were perfect from the time they were born. And then the president said, fake it till you make it. Nothing is real. Here, everything's fake. And people are on Instagram and you're not a real person. You don't have any talent. You're just talking to a thing. You're just pretty. Or you're just whatever people want you to be. You're this. And you're not. And you know what? Not everybody's going to be that. You're not that, you 26-year-old fuck. Do the work. And don't complain. I don't understand why it's Because you don't work. Because you're a lazy piece of shit. Mentioned George W. Bush, and then <laughs> on top of Trump, you know, the things are—they're similar in their upbringing. Oh, which taken care of by their daddies, entitled. Both had daddy issues. Yep, both their daddies gave them things that they fucked up. Exactly. Wow! Ooh. Because yes. Bush got the—he got the Rangers. Yes, he got the, exactly. He got the baseball team. And he fucked that up. Um, you know, even back before that, like you know, he had a cocaine problem, and he yes. was running. You know, all he got the, the DUI. He had the yeah, big car you know. crash. 
And then, like, yeah. And like then he, he had to come to Jesus talk where he said, I love Jesus. And, and that I'll was never the only way for him to get his daddy back. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, so, and then with Trump, it's the same thing. He has daddy mm-hmm. issues. Daddy kept bailing him out. Mm-hmm. It's both, both of them are similar. Yes. It's just the fact that I will say Trump plays the game a little bit better, unfortunately, because he, he knows how to. They both sound really dumb. But I, I have to say that it seems like, oh, I'm a, it's going to make me vomit in my mouth. It seems like W is more, he's more of the puppet. Sure. He was Cheney's puppet. Yeah. He's I'm the your puppet. puppet. And, and Bear, it, it was near, his daddy's near. folks, uh, H, uh, Herbert, that was like, okay, my son's in office. Go help him. <laughs> And with Trump, it's like, are you loyal to me? Are you loyal to me? Like, almost like the godfather. W's a puppet. So it's like <laughs> they're very sim- similar. Yes. But I also think that I could actually sit down and have a beer with George W. Hell Bush yeah. Absolutely. And have a great argument. I just talk to him about whatever. I think he's probably actually a nice guy. I think he's a little <laughs> bit more humbled. But there were, he's, you know what? He would be someone's mind you easily i feel like i didn't watch the movie with him that he that with the thing but yeah. i feel like george bush was like hey i'm just a guy and i figured it out my dad likes what i do now and i know how to make him happy i just love my dad and i just love my dad and I, you know what whatever they tell me is fine cheney he knows what's up he knows Halliburton. he knows the thing they want to make the money i think they should do it it's, it's all gonna be good i like the american people american people like me Cheney, he'll like American people. He'll like anybody. But I can. But he's smart. He's he's uh, he knows. <laughs> but you, so, but people like me, they don't like him. So he's you know. But I don't know anything. So I'm you know I'm just a guy. Exactly. We want to have beer. <laughs> I got the, I got the earpiece in there. They're writing a script. I'm just this saying exactly. it. I can read. I'm you know I can <laughs> I can read. That is one thing I can do. I can look. I can look. I can duck from a shoe. Can, and I can read. And I can get it done. Mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> He was smart because he just <laughs> let everyone else make the decisions. It's fantastic. <laughs> That's how he could look so dumb on 9-11 because he's like, uh, 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 I, uh, uh, because they didn't tell him. But he's still, re- <laughs> but he's still responsible for war crimes. Oh, I may, want, I, I, I may say I wouldn't, I, you know, he would be a person I could drink a beer with, but that doesn't mean I don't find you guilty for what you've done. Sure. Those are two different things sure. with 45. There's no way in hell. I'd never want to. Well, I, there's no way. Cause I I'm had like, the opportunity to meet him in 2006 when they wanted to put me on The Apprentice. And I said, no, Ooh. I'd only be on this to meet Martha Stewart. And they said, if she doesn't get picked up for it. She said, they said, if she gets picked up for a second season, you're definitely oh on it. But it's not going to get picked up for a second season. We pretty much know this. Would you like to be on Donald Trump's Apprentice? I remember this. I was in San Diego. I was in a hotel room. They brought me in for the second uh, interview because they, I was outside and I waited in line and they picked me and, and I talked to them and they were like, Oh, my God, we love you. Where were you in the first year? And I said, you're the casting directors. Come on. I was there. I got, you just, I was a little bit, you know, okay, it's fine. But I'm back. I'm back. Women in business don't cry, my dear. I'm back. I'm like, I'm your loose cannon. You want me on the show. If you would have booked me, if you would have got me last time, it would have been a loose cannon with crying and happiness. I'm like, do you understand? Like, I will, like, I will go gay for Martha. I will do anything. I will paint her nails. I will paint her dog's nails. I will anything. I will make cranberry topiaries until four in the morning to please her. I, I wouldn't get, but Trump, fuck it. 
And I told him, I was like, I'm not interested in that. I, I think he's a jackhole. And that was in 2006. Six. And thank you for retelling that story, too. Because I n- I'm, a, I'm not a religious person, I'm spiritual. But there is a reason why <laughs> you were not supposed to go on that show. Because honestly, from a lot of people that have worked with him and who were former contestants, like uh, Claudia Jordan, uh, she was one that she's um, uh, uh, a TV show host. But she talks about like, yeah, there was some sexual harassment. There was, he would say some atrocious things, some racist things. It was plagued with all those things like on The Apprentice. Yeah, and he did it on camera. Yeah, I mean, he was disparate, but he's always done that. Trump has always disparaged the way people look. That's what gets him over on it. That he always, like Roseanne Barr, she's ugly and fat. Like, okay, there's Rosie no Rosie O'Donnell. Rosie O'Donnell. <laughs> yeah. What did I say? Roseanne Barr. Oh, fans of each other. They're fa- well, they're both funny ladies. I don't know why he decided. Anyways, he's it's it's just so I with <clears throat> fat people fat shaming fat people. It's like okay, pot kettle black, which is why I know that Rosie O'Donnell or Fucking um, Roseanne Barr, either one of them could handle themselves, but he constantly disparages people's looks when, they, especially when it has nothing to do with that. It, no, because that's it's, he's a one-trick pony. Because that's all he has. He has no intellect. He has nothing else to offer but just one's aesthetic. Knowing right. goddamn well, and it's usually the people. And I'm speaking on men, uh, with men. It's usually men with the smallest penis <laughs> that go for someone's aesthetics because they are projecting. So much right. because they look at themselves knowing they got to put themselves and cook themselves every day to look that color. You have to spray your hair on yeah. knowing goddamn well that ain't all your hair. You ain't got no lips. We know you ain't got no dick. And so all, and now you got bigger titties than your wife. What's going to happen if he actually goes to jail and we see pictures of him without all the makeup and without all the hair. He's going to be bald. He's not going to be able to keep up the comb over, well, the whole look. I, I will think that they will put him, here's the thing, and this always happens. I don't think they're going to put him like in a regular state prison. I just, I, if or jail, you know, if it does happen. I think he'll be in club fed. I think he yeah. might have a little bit of, he might get a little bit of spray for his hair. The the spray. The orange kiss look, uh, probably not so much. He might turn a little bit pasty. Uh, I want to know what he looks like. Just like Oprah, remember when she did that thing and she said, okay, oh, this is no what I actually look like, I and that. now they're going to do me. They're going to – and they, all the things they did with the wigs and the and the spraying and the stuff and the and the powder and the eyeliner. Uh, boop, boop, it was – and it was like an hour long process, and she was like, and here I am. And it's like when you – and they put it side by side, and I was like – Whoa. I think that was like one of the last episodes I watched her. Yeah. Oh, uh, she should run for president. No. No. No more celebrities. I'm no more it. celebrities. All no. right. I'll, I'll, no I'll, more celebrities. I, you know what? I'll hear it. I'll agree with it. No I more celebrities. Just, no. I, you have to have at least some background in it. Be, at least be the mayor of something. I, I will say this much. It is quite delightful seeing. You are starting to see some in the Trump cult. Like I would say like 5%. Start to realize that they they've been tricked, oh. especially with the Rudy Giuliani thing, where the story came out about him, you know, recently uh, having his court appearance and admitting to guilt, admitting oh. that he lied, and so you do see some white wing, right wing, white wing commentators talk about like he lied to us, yeah, you know, and so 
But that doesn't mean they're getting off the, the cuckoo train just yet. Now, But now you do have an army, a plethora of his cult followers that have been threatening. You know, we have the district attorney, um, uh, Jack Smith, who is in charge of the whole, uh, the one in Washington, D.C. He is, um, is he? Special counsel, okay. uh, Jack Smith, where they they've um, put they've doxed him, they've swatted him and his family, you know, death threats. Because come on, these are Whoa. these people are the cultists will cult. Wow, all I, these people need protection. Hell, we're gonna need some protection because you have these mofo's right now talk about blowing up and civil war. And this is something that all them rednecks have been having a hard on for for generations is this whole civil war which oh, i feel no like not another one you're gonna lose so, but i mean so many people gonna so lose. many people died in the civil war was awful and horrific and it was just so they much slaughter they don't know that <laughs> and it was i mean it was like war is fucking devastating i've when you re- read or see like what the civil war was because that was before like i mean people were getting their legs Blown off, amputated, crazy things, no get gangrene, dying, no food, nowhere to poop, no I mean, even World War One, I watched this thing and the guys are just the trenches were insane. Mm -hmm. And what people had to go through and what war actually was and that the PTSD that follows you and that we we don't need that. And what is it? But why the men? Why are they so angry with each other? Because they're white supremacists. Mm. (laughs) Because those are the ones at Okay, for example, did you see the Alabama, Montgomery, Alabama brawl last week? So, no, someone mentioned it, and I said, oh, is that a movie? And I was making a joke, but they laughed and because they were talking about other racist movies, and they said, oh, did you guys see the Alabama brawl last week? And I'm like, is that a new movie? Um, but uh, that's, I know, that was really heartless of me. So, yeah, I don't know what it is, but there was an Alabama brawl. Okay, so in Montgomery, Alabama, on the riverfront, so um, basically there are these – uh, well, Trump had just left there. They had a, a Klan rally with oh Trump God. an hour uh, that day, that Saturday, August 5th. And so, you know, these white, I don't know if these uh, white uh, people were at the rally, but they sure act like it. So they would not move their pontoon bo- boat. Um, they were <laughs> entitled. The river boat. <laughs> That's that like the whitest thing big. that could possibly be. Right? I ain't going to move my pontoon, pontoon boat, boat for nobody. Dude, you know it's Natty Light and pontoons. Um, <laughs> and so they had this in uh, this riverboat that had 20 people, 20, 200 people coming in. And then the co-captain, who, who was a brother, was like, you need to move your pontoon boat. And they were throwing middle finger and all this stuff. The hillbillies were. And so, you know, of course, you know, there's going to be some racist slur- racial slurs. Oh, no. So and they don't. The fact that there's this brother telling these we're white people. We, how dare you tell us to move? So basically, but for safety because they were trying to dock. Entitlement. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, they we're had a party here. We just saw pe- Trump. They've had issues with these people before, but I'll get into that okay. no, uh, after this. So basically, they were ignoring the brother. They were ignoring the ca- uh, the captain that was on the boat. So basically, the um, the brother, hello, uh, undid their boat and stuff like that. And then the guy comes up. The owner was just like kind of mad and stuff like that. And so then. Uh, guy comes in and kicks him in his chest. 
What? Starts the fight. Ooh, Jesus. With the, wait, 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 wait. To the captain of the ship? To the co-captain, the brother that was. So the pontoon jo- pe- people jumped onto the other boat. No, no. The, the pontoon people that was on the dock. Oh. The so they guy. kick him in the chest. And start And then him. the shit goes down. And then you have to watch the video. You have to watch the video. Okay. Um, and the brother throws his hand up, hand in the air. He's like, well, I guess it's go time. <gasps> and then there's a other bunch of white people come in. His buddy jumps on him. Like six and 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 some Karens, and so it's all for real bra on one guy. What? So then is he okay? Oh yeah, he's fine. But um, you've got to watch the video. <laughs> it's just so basically, so th- some people saw that happening, and so then people in my community come down like, hey, get off him! Yeah, someone's filming, and then you 